Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So welcome back, Professor Rafe Madden. Thank you. Thank you. I'll uh, continue to try to plow through the subject. Um, the Ottoman sultans realized by the end of the 1700s that they couldn't hold on. You know, there, there was a problem. And you begin to see a series of, they're sometimes called reform movements. I, I, I wonder whether that isn't using too generous a word. Uh, improvement movements. Because there was no real effort at systematic reform. You know, at real, honest government, at a, at a genuine rule of law. Uh, but there was an effort to do things better. One of the most important things that needed to be fixed was the Janissaries. The Janissaries had become the masters of the government. Those were the, the, the crack troops. They had become the masters of the government in every way. Um, and they resisted reform. In 1826, the Sultan uh, procured some artillery from the French and got some training for some soldiers that were not Janissaries. And he ordered them to bombard the Janissary quarters. Uh, eventually, they were all slaughtered and the uh, Janissaries disappeared. And the Turks begin to have a, um, a military that becomes worthy of the name in the sense of having regular uniforms, being drilled, being subject to the command of their officers, having a relative amount of discipline. Of course, uh, as we will see in 1915, that's not a good thing. However, you know, in theory, it's better to have troops that are subject to some discipline uh, than troops that aren't subject to any discipline at all, other than whatever they themselves might happen to decide to, to impose. When you look at the constitutional history or the history of the, of the ins and outs of the politics in 19th century uh, Constantinople, frankly, it's a disaster. You know, the foreign powers pressure Turkey to, through this treaty, to honor the rights of the Christians within Turkey. And they say, of course we will. And then, of course, they don't. The Western powers then turn around and they say, they didn't use these words, but I'll use them now since I think we know what they mean. That was a red line. <laughs> and, of course, nothing happens. So, you know, what's the answer? Another treaty. Uh, and you have a series of treaties and treaties and treaties. And at one point, they force the Ottoman government to adopt a constitution. And so a parliament is elected, and the parliament meets once and is prorogued. And it doesn't meet again for 30 years. The 
Sultan from 1876 to 1909 is known as Abdul Hamid II. The popular name for him is Abdul Hamid the Devil. I find it hard to conceive of any person who has ever ruled anywhere more brutally or savagely as this man. He uh, was conniving, wily. He never gave his word, save in order to break it. Uh, you know, if you will, he, in order to be as dishonest as he was, he needed to give his word in the first place. So that's why it was important that he should give it. Uh, but it was, it, it was only so that he might break it. He was a tyrant in every sense of the word. During his reign, and of course, in one sense it was good, because even the European powers that were trying to manage the decline of Turkey, as pieces of it start falling off, they found it very difficult. You know, if there had been a somewhat more humane or enlightened or interesting ruler, they might have said, well, you know, he, he can be dealt with. But it was clear that nobody could deal with him. And so you find that uh, while Abdul Hamid is sultan, the Western powers grow increasingly exasperated with uh, him and with the, with the whole Ottoman Empire. He ultimately gets deposed when a group that existed, or a group of young, mostly military officers, but also relatively well-born, wealthy, uh, somewhat Western-educated uh, people. In English, they're referred to as the Young Turk Party, uh, a party that, 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 that lives in infamy. In 1908, on the 24th of July, they staged what is essentially a coup d'etat. And uh, they deprived the sultan of his powers, and they said, now we're in charge, thank you very much. And they claimed that they were going to restore constitutionalism. To some extent, they identified the problems that Turkey was having with, I don't want to say necessarily Islam itself, but perhaps with Sharia law. To some extent. But the problem is, what is the basis of this multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual empire? You know, what's the glue that holds it together? I don't know if anybody knew. I don't know that anybody does know. Because, you know, even today, I mean, okay, well, then there's Iraq and and you well, the Kurds at the top, and then there are the Yazidis who are on this mountain or at that valley, and there's always some other group that you hear about that you never heard about before. And that's because, of course, you know, it's, it's a rough area in terms of terrain, and so different, different ethnic groups. This is our valley, this is where we live, you know, we spread out over here, it's not a compact, nicely organized system. The borders are all very beautiful, and they go like this, and then they come over like that. But that's not, what, you know, that's not the, way really, the way people really are. You have ethnic groups that are all over the borders. The Young Turks, there were some, few, among them who gave the impression that what they wanted was just a constitutional Western country. And there were, people, there were Armenians, 
Uh, there were even some Greeks as well who thought, maybe we can work with them. Most of the Young Turk Party, however, said, we wish to build this state on the basis of Turkish supremacy. Um, any uh, high hopes that some of the Armenian political leaders may have had were dashed. Uh, the Young Turks were ferocious and systematic. If you will, Abdul, Az uh, Abdul Hamid, the devil, was he an evil man? Sure. But, you know, he was an inefficiently evil man. <laughs> um, you know, he got tired. He was lazy. He didn't always want to kill somebody. Sometimes he just wanted to have breakfast. The Young Turks were, and I know that many people often throw this term out about a, a lot of different things. I think it's applicable here. The Young Turks were more like Hitler in the sense of, let's do this as a system as an engine, as a program. So it doesn't depend on my laziness. You know, whether I have a headache this morning, I'm too tired to go kill people today. You know, I have a headache, so I'm not going to order anyone to die. Well, if it's a program or it's a system, it just grinds its way out. Now, Abdul Hamid had his runs in with Armenians. In the 1890s, he always suspected the Armenians of being allied with his arch enemies, the Russians. And he always said, these people are always trying to, plotting with the Russians against us. They're a fifth column that we have inside our country. It's um, not at all clear that that was so. I have to suppose that there was certainly a, a, a fair amount of sympathy. But I also have to suppose that a lot of people simply just wanted to go on with their lives, you know, just leave me alone. There was a hope. Uh, for a better condition, for something better. But I don't know that it was a, the Russians will come and save us, always. But that's what Constantinople always supposed. These people are the Russians' fifth column in our country. And when there were movements, when the French sent a diplomatic note that says that there had to be uh, more uh, protection for the Christians in the empire, in the 1890s, Abdul Hamid said, I will give these people a box to their ears. And the box to their ears was a series of pogroms, we might call them, although the term is usually used to describe what the Russians did with Jews. But it was a series of attacks on Armenian villages throughout uh, eastern Anatolia, so throughout this area. But they were random. And they were haphazard. This doesn't mean that they weren't bloody. Thousands upon thousands died. And I'm not talking about armed soldiers be, being killed. I'm talking about men, women, children. You were in the way, you were dead. Okay, villages burnt, churches pulled down, things destroyed, random, awful, terrible. Not systematic. Not designed as an efficient program. Instead, it was that kind of clumsy awfulness that is associated with sinful human behavior. Uh, grossly sinful human behavior. I don't wish to make light of it by any means. Thousands and thousands of Armenians died in the Hamidian massacres of the 1890s. Uh, mostly Armenians because the Greeks could appeal very loudly to their independent Greek brothers. And 
So they tended to shy away from messing with them, especially since the Greeks tended to manage most of the commerce with the West and the Turks needed the money from the commerce. But the Armenians were farther away from the West and so it was easier to squash them. But it was inefficient. The young Turks were not inefficient. We move into 1912. In 1912 and 1913, there were two wars in the Balkans. Famously, in 1914, there was another war that started in the Balkans, but certainly didn't end there. Over the course of those two years, Macedonia, Albania, well, not Albania, Macedonia, Bulgaria, mo just about all of Serbia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, well, actually, Bosnia and Herzegovina were freed in 19, well, the 1890s. But Almost everything in the Balkans is pried loose from the Ottoman Empire. They lose everything in Europe that they have except for that. That's it. And this was a devastating blow. This was their richest land. This was the most prosperous, most advanced, most populous part of the Ottoman Empire. This is a crushing blow to the finances, the psyche, the morale of the empire. Because it also happened in a two-year period. It wasn't like, well, we lost these things over the course of a century. They lost them overnight. How could this happen? Now, I'm not a Muslim. I, do, I can't speak for Muslims. I can't speak for Islam. I can tell you, you know, the Quran mentions the word love once, where it says God loves his people and his people fear him. Doesn't appear any other time. At least Islam as an historical movement considers Mohammedans to be the chosen people, the ones who are doing God's will. How could they lose? If we are the ones who are always supposed to win, how could we just lose the Balkans? All of them. How's it possible? We must have somebody who is betraying us. Somebody is responsible. Who could it be? When you look, you say, well, who among us is neither Muslim nor Turkish? Now, the, answer, uh, the, the, the answer to the question writes itself. The substantial Armenian population that exists in Turkey. A population of, the numbers are, are unclear, but they could be 2.5 million, 3 million. The statistics, you know, some people say this this big, other people say it's this. I'm not going to say, well, so I split the difference and go to the middle. But there have been a lot of revisions and, and reconsiderations of the numbers. My own view is that probably something close to 2.5 or 3 million uh, it seems likely. We know that the Turkish census numbers are unlikely to be um, uh, reliable because, of course, it was in their interest to minimize the number. Now, why would they bother to ask? Uh, there were certain censuses that were religious censuses that were done by the Armenian Patriarchate, the, the Armenian Apostolic Patriarchate, um, and there is every reason to suppose that those numbers are quite accurate. It's unclear that they were necessarily perfectly complete because the resources of the Armenian Apostolic Church were somewhat limited, but we have no reason to believe that what they counted wasn't accurate. 
Whether it was a complete count is less clear. In any event, you had this substantial population, not Turkish, not Muslim, widely suspected of being in cahoots with the Russians. A fifth column that's in the country, not merely in this part where most of them lived, but also engaging in commercial interests in Istanbul, right there in the capital. Can you imagine? Traitors amongst us. One additional thing. When all of these countries become independent from the, from the Turks, about 850,000 Muslim Turks leave the Balkans and come cross over into Turkey, what's now Turkey. They leave here and come here. It's almost a million people. Where do you put them? They were, the government decided to resettle them in Armenian villages in order to change the demography. Let's change the balance of, of population in Armenian villages. So they did. They were placed there. And what do you find? When the Turks left the Balkans, they left destitute. It's not as though they, you know, everybody said, hi, take everything you've got. In fact, here's some of my stuff. They left with nothing. And so here these Turks find themselves below, socioeconomically, the despised, degraded, who do these people think they are, non-Muslim Armenians. These people are better off than we are, and I'm in my own country. Horrible resentment. Horrible, horrible, horrible resentment. What I'm, I, I don't know if this is a good image or not, but it's a little bit like a pot that's boiling and just people are putting in different spices in it. And at the end, it's inedible. Um, all these things are, are making this stew worse. World War I begins and the Ottomans come in on the side of Germany and Austria. They decide early on to invade Russia this way, through the Caucasus Mountains, which are here. And they figure that the Russians won't be expecting it since the Russians will have most of their troops up here in Poland and in East Prussia fighting on the Eastern Front. They said, ha-ha, we'll be clever, we'll go this way, no one will know. And the campaign is a total disaster because the Turks on the Russian side of the border, the last thing they want is for, you know, Tsarist Russia may not have been well governed. It was a lot better governed than Ottoman Turkey. We don't want them to rule here. The campaign was disastrous. The Turks suffered horrible losses. And so they retreat, and it was very expensive in terms of uh, not just men, but also materiel. And they retreat back in across the border. Who's to blame? Doubtless, the Armenians told the Russians what our plans were. That's why the Russians <coughs> defeated us. It has to be, because any other explanation would suggest that we did it wrong. And that's the one thing we know that didn't happen. That's we know, uh, one thing we know didn't happen. 
The game, if you will, is afoot. Uh, we, we have now come to what happens. I'm going to go through this by just describing some, frankly, horrible, some horrible circumstances. Uh, the Young Turk movement had within it um, a secret revolutionary organization that in English is called the Committee of Union and Progress. It's, it was based largely on army officers uh, who were disaffected from the central government. They were sort of a secret government within a government. They were radical and ferociously anti-Christian, anti-Armenian in particular. Uh, in 1909, uh, there was a, I hate to use the word, a small massacre. A mere 20, 25,000 some people, Armenians mostly, uh, were killed. There had been relatively little bloodshed from the 1890s until 1909. And people, this was the first time that with the young Turks in power, what was going to happen? They were behind it. Uh, this massacre occurred at, uh, it's, it's referred to as Adana because the Adana province was where it occurred. After the withdrawal from Russia, the young Turks, I said they were systematic. They began with an interesting plan. All Armenians who had been conscripted into the army were placed into non-combat positions. Now all they could do was dig and their weapons were taken from them. Also, no training, no more training in using weapons of any kind. They were disarming the populace. In 19th, 19th of April in 1915, uh, the Turkish army demanded that the city of Van um, furnish him with 4,000 soldiers, Armenian soldiers, uh, under the pretext of conscription. But the uh, Armenians feared, and they were right, that the 4,000 men who would be given up would simply be slaughtered. And so they refused. He was offered 500 trained soldiers and money in, 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 instead. And he accused the Armenians of rebellion. And he said, if these rebels fire a single shot at me, I'll kill every Christian man and woman. And then he pointed to his knee and said, or child higher than that. The next day, the siege began. Uh, an Armenian woman was attacked. Two Armenian men who came to her aid uh, were killed by Ottoman soldiers. The Armenian defenders, poorly armed, poorly trained, protected the residents. There might have been about 3,000. Um, and about 15,000 refugees in the Armenian quarter of Constantinople. The Russians crossed the border in order to relieve pressure on the Armenians. Uh, and the Ottoman Turks stepped back. On April, uh, on the night of April 23rd or 24th, 1915, truly a, a fell and, and, and dreadful date in human history, the government ordered the roundup of certain Armenian intellectuals and leaders, about two to three hundred of them, in Constantinople. This is the, you know, decapitate. Very few of them uh, escaped alive. A few were allowed, were deported. Uh, almost all 
were assassinated. 24th of April 1915 is understood to be the beginning of the Armenian genocide. All the other stuff, I'm not trying to belittle it by any means, but all the other stuff were things that happened. Dreadful, horrible things that happened. But this becomes the government doing this as a matter of concentrated, focused, systematic policy. In May of 1915, uh, Mohammed Talat Pasha, a name that should be remembered uh, as infamous in history, Talat Pasha, he asked that the cabinet and the prime minister, the grand vizier, uh, Halim Pasha, legalize a measure for the deportation of Armenians to other places because the Armenian riots and massacres uh, had arisen in a number of places in the country and this way all of those problems could be concentrated in one place. The Central Committee of the Young Turk Party, the CUP that I mentioned earlier, they uh, proposed and got passed a temporary law of deportation that gave the Ottoman government and the Ottoman military authorization to deport anyone that it, quote, sensed to be a threat to national security. Uh, this law uh, included some measures for the protection of the property of anyone who was deported, uh, but by September a new law was proposed uh, for any properties that were abandoned. And so what you see happen is, you know, the one law says, well, you can take certain things with you. You can't take anything else. And then the new law says, oh, by the way, anything that wasn't taken is abandoned. Now, there was opposition, even among Turks, even among Turkish Muslims. In the Turkish parliament, uh, one representative, his name was Ahmed Riza, he protested this legislation. Um, it is unlawful to designate the Armenian assets as abandoned because the Armenians, their proprietors, did not abandon the properties voluntarily. They were forcibly, compulsorily removed from their domiciles and sent into exile. Now the government, through its efforts, is selling their goods. If we are a constitutional regime of laws functioning in accordance with constitutional law, we may not do this. This is atrocious. Grab my arm, eject me from my village, sell my properties. Such a thing cannot be permissible. Neither the conscience of us as Ottomans nor the law may allow this. Needless to say, he was voted down. He later suffered for the speech that he gave. But it's important to remember, many people did many horrible things. But some people stood up for what was right as they understood it. Well, stood up for what was right within their capacity to do. There were some. There were Turkish Muslims who came to the defense of the Armenians. On the 13th of September 1915, the Ottoman Parliament passed the temporary law of expropriation and confiscation. They said that all property, including land, livestock, homes, anything belonging to Armenians who were ordered to be deported, remember, if they were sensed to be a danger to national security, was to be confiscated by the authorities. By the way, in a number of the villages, the authorities were designated as the newly arrived refugees from the Balkans. And they often said, I like your house. 
I sense that you're a threat to national security. Goodbye. Because now you had to leave. The confiscation of, of Armenian properties and the slaughter of Armenians that ensued, and I'm going to talk about that, came to the attention of the Western world relatively quickly. Now, this was in the middle of World War I. The United States was not yet a combatant, and in fact, the United States never declared war against the Ottoman Turks. When it did enter the war, it declared war on Austria-Hungary, sadly. It declared war on Germany, uh, and it declared, I, don't, I think it also declared war on Bulgaria, but not. I don't remember that. But it certainly didn't declare war on the Ottomans. There were, you know, there were uh, Americans who were in Turkey at the time. They were witnesses. They took photographs. By the way, I decided not to have photographs tonight. I thought, I hate to say that they're so distressing. They're horrible. They're truly awful, awful to look at. This doesn't mean that they shouldn't be looked at, but I didn't wish to sensationalize by putting them on here. You should, if you're not familiar with the photographs, go to Google, Armenian Genocide. Uh, go to images, and you will see truly heart-rending pictures of ghastly, ghastly crimes. But there were American reporters who were walking around, and they were seeing things happening, and they were reporting what was happening under the law. Um, it is clear, we know, from the papers, the, this infamous man, Mohammed Talat Pasha, his widow, not very many years ago, gave his papers up, uh, and they've been published as the black book of Talat Pasha. And his crimes are amply documented. You know, it is very clear that his goal was the annihilation of uh, the Armenian people in Turkey. Um, and not merely because they were Armenians, let's not be mistaken, because they were Christians. In any event, where were all the Armenians to be sent? They were to be sent there, the Syrian desert, just sent into the desert. I'm not talking, you know, say, well, surely they, you know, they have anything prepared for them. It was just inadequate because they didn't have enough for the right people. They had nothing prepared for them. There, you see that sand? Go there. There was no shelter, no food, no water, no anything. So when you got there, what you got essentially was the place where you were going to die. Um, I don't know whether it was lucky for you if you got there at all, because on the way, they didn't have any provisions either. Get up, leave now. You'd take whatever you happened to have, and you had to walk along the road. If there was water that you found on the way, Turks, by the way, were unlikely to give any to you. Uh, if you found some water, okay, great, drink it. I hope it's enough to take you to where you're going to die. There were no provisions of any kind made. So the, 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 nowadays it's fashionable to talk about there as well. It was a deportation. It was done for security reasons, and it was so orderly. Some people died. You know, you're going to make an omelet. You've got to break a few eggs. That's, it happens. No. There's no provision of any kind. Get up, go, and go to a place where it is impossible to live. In a New York Times article of August 1916, 
Witnesses have seen thousands of deported Armenians under tents in the open, in caravans on the march, descending in boats and in all, in all phases of their miserable life. Only in a few places does the government have any rations, and those are horribly insufficient. The people, therefore, themselves are forced to satisfy their hunger with food begged in that parched land. Naturally, the death rate from starvation and sickness is very high and is increased by the brutal treatment of the authorities, whose bearing towards the exiles as they're being back, driven back and forth across the desert is not unlike that of slave drivers. With few exceptions, no shelter of any kind is provided, and the people coming from a cold climate are left under the scorching desert sun without food or water. Temporary relief can be obtained only by the very few who are able to pay officials, bribe them. Uh, a, German field, uh, a German major general who was in Turkey, the Turkish policy of causing starvation is an all too obvious proof, if proof were needed, as to who is responsible for this massacre, for the Turks have resolved to destroy the Armenians. Another major general who was the uh, military attache of the German embassy in Constantinople said the Turks have embarked upon the total of extermination of Armenians in the Transcaucasus area. The aim of Turkish policy is, as I've re reiterated, the taking possession of Armenian districts and the extermination of the Armenian people. Talat's government wants to destroy all Armenians, not just in Turkey, but also outside of Turkey. On the basis of all the reports and news coming to me here in Tiflis, there can be no doubt that the Turks systematically are aiming at the extermination of the few hundred thousand Armenians who ha they have left alive until now. There, were a, there was a network of 25 or so extermination camps set up by the Ottoman government to dispose of those who happened to have survived. A number of Western agencies attempted to provide relief, including the uh, American Committee for Relief in the Near East, uh, some $117 million were collected and spent for this purpose, but much of the money had to be uh, spent greasing the palms of Turkish officials so that anything would get through. There were mass burnings. Um, uh, a lieutenant of the Ottoman army describes how the population of a village was taken altogether and then burnt. The commander of the Third Army's uh, sent a 12-page affidavit uh, reporting a ma the mass burning of the population of an entire village. The shortest method for disposing of the women and children concentrated in the various camps simply was to burn them. It was the easiest way to do it. Um, remember, systematic, modern, efficient. Turkish prisoners who had apparently witnessed some of these scenes were horrified and maddened. They told the Russians that the stench of burning human flesh permeated the air for many days thereafter. Uh, near uh, Trabizond, they decided that it was cheaper not to have the death march go through. So what they did is they put them onto boats and then sank them. I saw thousands of innocent women and children placed on boats that were then deliberately capsized in the Black Sea. 
the American Chargé d'Affaires at Constantinople writes, boatloads sent down the river arrived some 30 miles away and three-fifths of the passengers were missing. They had been thrown overboard. In addition, they used poison and drug overdoses. One of the ones, they were efficient and modern. Did I mention that? I think I have mentioned it. In one of them, they went through and they said, this is to inoculate people from typhus. And of course, what they were using was typhus. Uh, they were giving them typhus. Uh, they used toxic gas in Trabizond as well as they attempted, uh, they, the problem is that they didn't have enough of it, uh, the problem. Uh, they used overdoses of morphine for some people. This will be good training for our doctors. If all of this sounds like people who were acting in Germany just a few decades later, there's a reason I'm mentioning it. Now, in 1919, the Sultan ordered a trial, a court-martial for those who were responsible. The court-martial found that it had been the will, the express will of the CUP, this secret committee within the Young Turks, to eliminate the Armenians via their special uh, organization. The pronouncement of the court is, the court-martial, taking into consideration the above-named crimes, declares unanimously the culpability as principal factors, those are principal actors, of these crimes, Talat Pasha, Enver Effendi, Cemal Effendi, uh, Nazim Effendi, and then ordered the death penalty against all of these people. It is an acknowledgment of guilt which stands in contrast to something that I'm going to use now to, to bring my, my talk to a close. The number of people who died is unknown. It is estimated that there could have been as many as about two million in a very short period just died, deliberately led to their deaths. Uh, I will say that, uh, I'll mention only here because this is the Institute of Catholic Culture, on repeated occasions Pope Benedict XV attempted to intervene with the Ottoman government, uh, but was rebuffed over and over, and the Holy Father was accused of having a pro-Russian policy, which is highly um, unlikely, especially from the anti-Catholic Russian government of the time. But what is awful and is difficult to fathom is that to this day the Turkish government won't hear of this. The, the Turkish government in 1919 talked about the elimination and the policy of elimination of the Armenians and blamed certain people. It also blamed the CUP organization. I think they were right in that. I think there were many others who were also at fault. It wasn't just a small number of people. But those people certainly were guilty. And the government went to the trouble of mentioning what the crime had been. The Turkish government has adopted a policy of all but denying it. Well, first of all, there weren't that many. The numbers are exaggerated. 
Um, in addition, it wasn't a, a, you know, a specific program. You know, some people died. There was, we were in the middle of a war. How could we be blamed? There were problems all over the place. The country was poor. Look, a lot of Turks died too. Nobody's complaining about them. You know, one way or another, they're trying to soften edges everywhere. And they want to put their fingers around what happened and that it was conscious and that it was deliberate. I think that the Armenian genocide, an, an interesting detail, the word genocide, which we all know, uh, didn't exist. It was invented for this event. When the world saw what happened and attempted to come up with a word to describe it, they had to invent one. A crime like it had never been seen before. And so genocide is invented for this. Why is it important? It's important, first of all, because those people were human beings like you and me. They were born. Uh, they were redeemed by the Lord. God in heaven loved and loves them. Uh, they had names. They were... They had parents, they had children, they, or they may have had children, they had brothers and sisters. They lived, and we need to remember those people that lived. Second, we're living in a world in which many of the same forces, many of the same attitudes, many of the same streams of thinking that brought that to bear are alive today, are kicking today. We face them today. We know that much of the particularly personal attacks that were conducted against Armenians during the, during the uh, deportation were directed them at them particularly as Christians. There is, for instance, an eyewitness who reports that uh, 16 girls, young girls, were crucified outside of the town of Malatya, each girl had been nailed, al nailed alive upon her cross, spikes through her feet and hands, her hair blew in the wind, e the hair of each one blew in the wind, it was their sole covering. Winston Churchill talked about the Armenian Holocaust and he said it was an administrative Holocaust, a systematic government action. The opportunity presented itself for the opportunity that is World War I presented itself for clearing Turkish soil of a Christian race. Adolf Hitler later pointed out that Turkey is merely taking advantage of the war in order to thoroughly liquidate its internal foes, these indigenous Christians, without thereby being disturbed by foreign intervention. We face much of the same from many in the Muslim world. There is systematic persecution of our brothers, of our brother Christians, and these are our brothers and sisters, be they um, Orthodox, be they Catholic. We hear now Turkey underwent a radical secularization under a person who's known to history as Kemal Atatürk, uh, or Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, father of the Turks. He wanted to revolutionize Turkey when he took over the government uh, after World War uh, I. He forbade the use of Arabic 
Everyone had to use Roman letters. And by this simple stratagem, he caused an entire generation to be incapable of reading any of the ancestral materials they had before them. They could barely read the Quran. They could barely read any historical documents from their own country. So they had to read Western stuff. He, said he forbade people to dress in traditional Muslim attire. He made them dress in Western attire. And Turkey has been uh, mixed, but a surprisingly pro-Western, progressive country. But when Turkey broke up after, the, after World War I, because after World War I and after the Armenian massacres, there was no forgiving. They said, this has got to go because a country, that, a government that's capable of doing this has to end. Turkey was, the Ottoman Empire was systematically dismembered. And uh, eventually, through more military action, the Turks kept what's now Turkey, but Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, what was known as, well, the Transjordan, um, uh, what's now Iraq, what's now Arabia, all the, 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 um, the Arabian Peninsula states, the Yemen, uh, Oman, all that. That was all a product of the peace settlement after the war. All that had been under Ottoman control, and all out of that, all of that was broken up. Okay, now we're going to have different countries, and then there was the French sphere of influence and the British sphere of influence, where they would influence these governments. What you have, but what you, what we see though, is this: the um, Arabs who had also lived under the Turkish yoke. The Turks liked Turks. And the fact that they were Muslims made it better for them, but it didn't make it good for them. And they begin a policy of intense Arab nationalism. We want our country for people like us. And they have learnt many of the lessons of the Turks from the early 1900s. How can we change our country's demographics so that everybody looks like us and behaves like us and has our religion? I want to just close with this. Next, uh, next year, in 2015, there will be a, um, it'll be the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the death march. Uh, I thought you might like to know that the Bishop of Rome the Patriarch of the West, uh, our Holy Father, uh, has announced that he will be celebrating a special mass you know, of memory for the victims of the Armenian massacre. The Lord be praised. What's the relationship with the two kinds of Armenians that exist today? The two kinds of? Armenians mm -hmm. that exist today to what happened in the genocide. Well, I, I, I presume you're referring to the fact that there are, uh, of course, very many Armenian apostolic Christians, and then there are a smaller number of Armenian Catholic Christians. Uh, there's even a very small number of Armenian Protestant Christians. I, I, I'm afraid that any answer I would give would likely be a blunder. The, you know, the, the Armenian Republic is, 
in some ways tortured by having been within the Soviet Union for so long. I mean, they, they suffered another purgatory for 70 plus years. Um, uh, then, of course, there are the many Armenians of the diaspora. I, I'm, I'm afraid I couldn't really speak very well or intelligently to your question. You have briefly alluded to this. I want to give you an opportunity to expand. When planning the extermination of Jews in Central Europe, Hitler famously said, eh, who remembers the Armenians? Yeah, that is, in fact, uh, it was one of the quotes that I was going, I had to cut somewhere, but that's exactly right. Who remembers them? You know, who will remember this? It's, it's frightening. It's frightening. I mean, Stalin himself later says, you know, I really, you kill one person, it's a murder. You know, kill a million, it's a statistic. Since this was happening in the middle of World War I, did the Allies ever give any serious consideration to militarily doing something about this since they appeared to have known what was going on? They did know what was going on, but they did, weren't in a position to do anything militarily other than Russian troops did cross the border at the very early stages. At the exact same time, uh, the British had landed troops at Gallipoli. You know, they, if you will, they were losing in their military campaigns against uh, the Turks. I don't believe that they could have done anything, anything more than they did. And they certainly didn't do anything directly. Uh, professor, you talked at uh, some great length about uh, Islam being spread by the sword. Uh, that is still an issue, at least in some circles today, among some people who believe that that's the case now. Uh, can you comment as to whether or not that is so, or who, who's right on this? You know, we have people on both sides saying things. Some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, people on the Islam side to say that's not so, but. Uh, uh, where, where is the truth in all this? There's a little bit of difficulty here, and that difficulty is something akin to the difficulty that sometimes happens when people say, well, what is the Protestant position on this or that doctrinal point? No one speaks for Protestantism. Each Protestant has his own view. I suppose the different Protestant communions have, have uh, some doctrinal expressions of this, that, or the other, but there's no one spokesman. Um, Islam, similarly, doesn't have one spokesman. Uh, so I think when, you know, the, when somebody says, well, that's not in accordance with Islam, well, you'll find some other Muslim who'll say that it's perfectly in accordance with Islam. Uh, I, I can't speak about Islam directly because I'm, I'm not a Muslim and I, I haven't made it the subject of my, of my study. But when I hear that certain things are not in accordance with Islam, it would certainly sound a lot better if they were criticizing, if, if the people who were saying that were criticizing it when other Muslim brothers were, were acting. Thank you very much, Professor Madden. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>